The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, we meet the aliens and find that they are us. The sorcerers who rule the world go down for the count. And a band of survivors learns to thrive on a hostile alien planet. All that, plus my conversation with Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters about 1636 Calabar's War. And we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David Afshirod. Today, we bring you my conversation with Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Watt. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David Afshirod, sitting in for Tony Daniel. Today, we bring you my conversation with Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters about their new novel, 1636, Calabar's War. Calabar's War is, of course, part of Eric Flint's best-selling Ring of Fire series, and it was great to sit down and talk with Chuck and Robert about the series as a whole and where Calabar's War fits in. We talked about the themes in the novel, as well as the swashbuckling plot and daring characters who are found therein. It's a conversation that I think will appeal to longtime fans of this landmark alternate history series, as well as newcomers. But first, the news. The April mass market paperbacks are in. First up, Starborn and Godsons by Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, and Stephen Barnes. This is the long awaited conclusion to the military science fiction epic the Legacy of Hero series. Avalon was finally thriving. The cold sleep colonists from Earth had settled on a verdant, livable world, but unbeknownst to the planet-bound humans, something was moving out there in the stars. Its destination, Avalon. Its probable origin, Earth's solar system. Next up, we have Castaway Resolution by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr. The Kimmy family and the second group of castaways, led by the redoubtable Sergeant Campbell, have finally joined forces landing on the bizarre planet Lincoln. But the resourcefulness of the castaways may not be enough, because the planet Lincoln is far from done with them. And finally, The Initiate by James L. Cambius. The Apkalu are masters of magic. They rule the world from the shadows, using mind control and deadly monsters to eliminate any threat to their power. Sam Arcaro lost his family to a demon sent by the Apkalu. He knows that nobody would believe the truth, but now an old man offers Sam the chance to find out who is responsible and bring down the Apkalu forever. And that's it for the news. Now, my conversation with Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters about their new novel, 1636, Calabar's War.
We're here with Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters. They are the co-authors of the new Ring of Fire series entry, 1636 Calabar's War. It's out now in trade paperback and ebook formats wherever fine books are sold. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. So uh, this is number 30. I looked it up right before we uh, came on the air here or started recording rather. Uh, in the Ring of Fire series, uh, sort of way back when with Eric Flint's 1632 was the first novel in the series, and it's really become a touchstone, a landmark in the alternate history genre, and has spawned just this fascinating web of, of authors, co-authors, and we call it fan fiction. It's not really even fan fiction with the Grantville Gazettes, and uh, it's just a really become an interesting multi-author project, I guess is one way to think of it. And uh, I imagine most people watching this or listening to it are familiar with it a little bit, but if we could just take a, a second to uh, one of you walk us through what is uh, the Ring of Fire and then uh, a little less briefly maybe how does Calabar's War slot into, into the overall series. Okay, well, as being, I guess, by a year or two, um, the, the earlier participant in Ring of Fire, Ring of Fire starts actually uh, uh, asynchronously in 1631 uh, in what's called the old timeline. That, that is the, uh, the, the, the past. It, it, it's, this, this series opens with, uh, within the last months of the 20th century, um, this uh, effect that takes place in a small town in Virginia patterned after uh, Mannington, I believe it is. Uh, in this place called Grantville. Hence, you'll hear Grantville show up a lot in, in references to uh, the Ring of Fire 1632. Um, and it is a small town, a uh, mining town in West Virginia. There it is a, there is a, a, a ball of light that, that uh, grabs up a sphere of terrain from that time space location and swaps it with one in 1631 in Thuringia in Germany. Um, it swaps it in such a place also that they are emerging within days of a fateful battle at which uh, Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden at that time, is killed, known as the Lion of Luth uh, the, the Lutheran Lion or the of the North, um, and that changed the course of the war. However, the um, the folks of Grantville. Um, for a variety of reasons, get involved in a, in a set of unusual ways that the, that event is changed. Gustavus Adolphus does not die. The war, the Thirty Years' War sort of uh, um, changes and, and is, and is uh, sort of um, foreshortened. And, um, and, and the story goes forward largely tracking at first the events and, and how the people of Grantville deal with this change. Uh, and the changes they bring to this world. As the, as the novels go on, more and more of the story arcs move into what are called the downtimers. Downtimers are people who come from uh, the 1631 of this changed world, which is now called the new timeline, the point at which it diverges from the timeline we would find in our history books. That's called the new timeline. And the, the, the downtimers of the new timeline are, uh, are being very, very rapidly changed. In a lot of ways, far more rapidly changed than the uptimers who have to adapt. But um, you know, imagine getting four, 350 years 
of of uh, there's a high school people you know so many so many uh, alternate histories a gun comes through or a car comes through or you know something like that or or somebody has one piece of knowledge in this case the most strategically tactically and culturally influential uh, innovation or or uh, introduction from our timeline is the high school library. And, and if you think about the, 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 the obvious things and then all the subtle things that that does um, are, uh, are just, they have an immense impact. And uh, Grantville in many ways becomes one of the new centers of the world, uh, although not a great city, just a place that everybody's, everybody's scholars and everybody's spies go there. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, broad, the, the broad sweep of it. Yeah, um, and as you said early on in the novels, primarily focus on on that more narrow um, uh, arc of the story of what's going on there. But they do spread out, and I think that's part of the appeal of this series, which we'll, we can maybe talk about. Um, is that that has we? I think in the in the ad copy, a lot of times we'll use the term ripple effect, right? It has a ripple effect going out and out from this one place, and Calabar's War takes place kind of on the other side, almost, other side of the Atlantic, not quite the other side of the world. Uh, so when in the timeline and what is going on uh, and where are we located uh, in this novel that you gentlemen have written? I can take that one. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, like you said, uh, there's ripple effects and the series has broadened itself out from Europe. Um, Calabar's War fits into the storyline that is developing in the New World. Um, it, 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 it takes place in the Americas. Specifically, it takes place in South America and in the Caribbean. Uh, the actual start date of the novel, actually, it goes back a little bit. Um, the, the series itself is, uh, is, is progressed from the, uh, the first novel, 1632. We're now up into 1637. Most of the novels now, the main novels now, even sideline novels that are published by Bain are now established in 1637. This one goes back a little bit. It starts, uh, it actually starts in 1633. It um, basically begins at the aftermath of the pretty devastating Battle of Dunkirk where the Dutch are basically ambushed and damaged considerably their fleet. And they kind of, they kind of hobble themselves across the Atlantic and go to Brazil. Calabar's War begins in Brazil. Uh, the main thrust of the novel begins around 1634. So this goes back in time a little bit and it starts in 1634 and it begins to basically recount um, Admiral Tromp's arrival, the Dutch, Dutch Admiral, Admiral Tromp in, in Brazil, comes into Brazil and the exodus of the Dutch from there into the Caribbean and that's how it goes. So basically it starts, there are three, there are four novels now set in the Americas. Um, three of them that deal with our area of uh, our area of operation. You've got the first one, 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. You've got the one that just came out last May, 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. And now you have 1636 Calabar's War. Calabar's War actually uh, basically begins before 1636 Commander Cantrell, and then it parallels actions within there. And then it stops right before 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. So that's where it fits. It fits into the, the New World storyline down in uh, central, uh, uh, into uh, Caribbean and into Brazil. 
And just in case anybody was getting lost um, with the timeline and thinking, has it really been that long since No Peace Beyond the Line has come out? Uh, actually, uh, it came out in November. Uh, so, so if you haven't gotten to it yet, it's it's not like you've overlooked something for a year. Uh, Absolutely, it's like, yeah, it's, it's more like about five five months at this point. Yeah, about five months at the moment. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the. Uh, uh, let's should we let's talk about the. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about how this book its journey to publication. Let's talk about that and then we'll jump into sort of the plot. Yeah. The yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. This, this one, this one has been a long time coming and um, I met Chuck many years ago, you know, 2009, 2010, I think he invited me to, to join the series and maybe write in the series. I took about a year though, to read in the series back in those days. Uh, it was not as large, you know, so it was not that hard to get into it at that point. I read all the mainline novels, many of the anthologies, some of the short stories, and then I started writing in the series. At some point along the way, a year, two years into writing stories, primarily for the Grantville Gazette, he invites me, I mean, so I, I try my uh, uh, hand at it, and he, he invites me to, uh, to uh, write this story uh, about Calabar and uh, Brazil. Now, the original intention of the story was to be a novella. It was supposed to be just a novella about Admiral Trump's arrival. And by the way, the pronunciation of Recife, R-E-C-I-F-E, -E, is Hesife. That's how the Portuguese pronounce it. They pronounce it with the H sound, Hesife. <laughs> it, you know, it's it, sometimes it's a little tough. Sometimes some of the some of the languages switch switch pronunciations and stuff. But it is Hesife. Um, his arrival there, his decision to move the Dutch out of Brazil into the Caribbean. Now, this is all handled or discussed in Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. So this isn't anything new in the storyline so far. So we wrote the novella. And like Chuck said, it sat and it sat and it sat. Time went by. Uh, the schedule for what the public, what was going to be published in the series just sort of switched. The nature of, uh, we were going to have it in a New World anthology. You know, it was going to be part of a New World anthology. But the nature of that anthology changed. Um, and so Calabar kind of didn't have a home for a bit. And so uh, Chuck calls me on the, home, on the phone one day after we met in Liberty Con and said, hey, let's make it a novel. We've already got around 35,000 words. Why not just make it a novel? And so this was back in 2014 or 2015. Oh, wow. That long ago. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's then... after it's been sitting around as a novella for two or three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and, and at one point I thought, well, this is never going to happen. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just not going to happen. Um, but uh, so we, you said, I said, sure, let's do it. And so, uh, you know, we got onto it, got the contract, started outlining it, started plotting it. And, you know, one thing led to the other and here we are. But I, it, it has been at least a seven, eight year journey, believe it wow. or not, it has been that long in the process. Yeah. And, and a lot of this has to do with going back to what you were saying, David, that, that there's a, there are kind of, um, I don't know if this was your first intro or the one we're recording now, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but if it's, but that, that in a lot of ways, this series is kind of, um, it's, it's both a benchmark and unique. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways in which it is unique is with all the people who've come into it. And I believe uh, in my last conversation with Eric, something like 200 people have now been involved in the writing of it at one level or another. I don't know if that's 200 total fiction and nonfiction, because believe it or not, you, you might say, how could there be nonfiction for something that, that is got time travel, you know, which by the way was, was, we don't talk much about this anymore, but the time travel was, was induced 
by uh, by by irresponsible alien art from eons ago. Um, if that sounds crazy enough for you, well, then you want to find out about it. Read the book. Uh, actually, that hasn't been mentioned since the first book, but there are there's a series that are connected to it called Time Spike, which which does traffic in that that origin a little bit. But the bottom line is, as you get more people coming in, um, it 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 actually has an impact on where the series goes. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, I came in uh, largely when you get right down to it. I started also with a novella uh, that that Eric said, I'm going to use it for the New World Anthology. So now we're back in 2010. OK, I haven't written Papal Stakes yet. I haven't written Exodus, my first science, my first full novel for for Bain. And uh, but he says, I like it. I'm going to use it. I'm going to buy it. I sat there and I was looking at what else was going on in the series. And, and one of the things that was going on in the series is, as folks will, will quickly see, is that after the first book, David Weber um, jumps in for, I believe, two books uh, in the main line. And these are, these are very, these are the three, this is sort of the holy trinity. If you want to know what's going on and you can almost track all arcs back to what goes on in those first three books. And I looked at that and I said, David Weber, such a such a guy with such an empty dance card. I'm sure he's going to be able to, to do the Honor Harrington project and safe all this, but just in case he can't, you know, and, and so I had in my mind that I was going to save that. And lo and behold, um, it became the basis for, I, I brought it, I, I became in a sense, no one can replace uh, David Weber, but certainly I, uh, I filled the same slot on the batting order when it came to naval combat at that time in the new world. Mm -hmm. And so lo and behold, I take that novella that I wrote that Eric said he was gonna publish and it becomes part of the story that ultimately becomes Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Meanwhile, before that's even happened and comes to fruition, I'm talking to Robert Waters with Eric's blessing saying, we've got this idea for a story. Let me see it. So we, so he writes it and we, we take a look at it and, and it won't work for the new world anthology anymore because at this point now we're thinking more everything it's north america caribbean and north america and as time goes on even that changes caribbean becomes so involved in its own in its own stories that the new world anthology as i believe it is is conceptualized now um is that it's uh, it's going to be um i think it's just as a matter of fact the cover art just came out recently yeah it's um, on the schedule coast of chaos yeah yeah coast, coast of, of chaos, chaos i think uh and um and so, so that that novel has finally come to be more than 10 years after or 12 years after that was envisioned. But two novels grew up out of it. You might almost say three, possibly four, because Commander Cantrell grew up out of that. No Peace Beyond the Line grew up out of Commander Cantrell. And then second generation, uh, Calabar's War grew up out of out of the notion of this. So it's been... Um, it's been a long, it's been both a, a long gestation period, but it's also been a sort of um, brutery. You know, it's, it's breeding, it's breeding mm -hmm. new offspring, uh, no, novel length offspring as we've waited for it to come about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump in and talk about it a little bit. It's, if you guys even remember it, had you remember writing this? It's been so long. <laughs> but um, but oh, we what book are we talking about? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just set up sort of the the main plot problem i guess if you would and tell us who you know uh robert mentioned the these pronunciations so i'm probably going to get them all wrong because i don't speak portuguese or spanish very well, well. i'm going to do, do the same thing i'm going to i'm going to wind up calling it recife simply because 
Hesife sounds too much like hissy fit. So I'm going uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. to go with my own mispronunciation. Please, please yeah. speakers for everywhere, forgive me. <laughs> um, so who is <clears throat> Domingos Ferdinandes Calabar and uh, what is his war? I guess is the okay. question, you know, how does, right. what, what is this book? I guess what's the main crux of the book about as far as yeah. him as a character? All right. Fernando, uh, Domingos Fernandez Calabar is what the Portuguese called at the time a Mameluco. He was a part Portuguese, part Brazilian native. He served the Portuguese in Brazil and specifically in Recife and also in the uh, captaincy of Pernambuco, which is the main province there. He served them as a plantation owner, but he also uh, served as a um, military scout and an advisor. He was really good at that sort of thing. He had a good sense of topography, had a good sense of the lay of the land. He understood the people very well. So the Portuguese used him in that capacity. But when the Dutch show up in the beginning of the 1630s, you know, 1630, 1631, for some reason he switches sides and he changes his allegiance to the Dutch. Now, history doesn't specifically state why he did this, um, but he does. And in doing so, of course, ticks off the uh, Portuguese to no end. In the real world, he actually gets captured and executed, but not until he actually becomes a folk hero for the Brazilian populations and peoples in there. And even to this day, he is considered a, an important historical figure in the history of Brazil. Controversial, his, it should also be said. Exactly, exactly, very much. And so his involvement in this novel comes about by the fact that Admiral uh, Trump comes across the Atlantic from the devastation at the Battle of Dunkirk and comes to Hesife. The plan for him, of course, at Trump, is to hightail it out, get the Dutch out of Brazil, because they just cannot hold, because of the changing nature in, 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 in Europe, um, they, they can't hold that holding. It's, it's too strong. There's too many dangers there. They've got to get out. That's where Calabar comes into the story. He's already in the history, in the real, in the real history, he's already changed sides. So he's he's there. And so when Trump arrives, he begins to serve him to figure out way, figure out a, a good, decent way to get the Dutch out of. That's that's where we begin. Yeah, and, and uh, just to frame up a little bit, sure. uh, the, the the reason that they have to Recife at this point, Recife, uh has uh, is 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 genuine it's a it's a place of major investment it was a sort of a long reach for the dutch they had been they had been trying to establish a toehold in some place in pernambuco in brazil since the late 1620s um and this is uh, in in real life this is where maurice of nausau comes in and uh at, at just a little bit after this and and actually for for quite some time um Recife is a is a is a major is a major location in the New World. Is a major source of sugar, um, and uh, and really is developed as a city in a in a way that none of the Portuguese cities are developed. Uh, it also never turns a profit, uh, and the reason for that is the constant requirement defense requirements and the constant ship losses. Now, in this situation, the big change is that the Battle of Dunkirk, which you just heard Robert mention, this essentially not only devastates the Dutch fleet. But they they now no longer it winds up with the blockade of Amsterdam and all of their other ports. They have no way 
to support their global colonies at this point, which is there are major investments, the Dutch East India Company, which is every place from the Philippines down to Indonesia. They, they have a variety of, of holdings there. And the Dutch West India Company, which is at this point is just starting, makes a, an initial foothold in, uh, in the Caribbean in uh, St. Eustatia, uh, but was more focused on South America. So, um, so, so what has happened is without the ability to constantly send all those, the defense personnel, the ships, the guns, the, the gunpowder, all of that sort of logistical tale, uh, Trump correctly analyzes this situation and says in 18 months, we're gonna be dead. We have to leave now while we can. And that is what precipitates this as something other than just, this is more than just a good idea. This is a survival decision. And that's sort of the, because um, one thing I like about this book and I guess the series in general is how it, of course, with the whole breadth of everything, especially, but even within this novel and with other specific stories, novels, how we have the big socio-political stuff and then also the very human element. And so that's sort of the background of what's going on with all this. But then this story really, you know, I really liked Calabar and I, and I, liked him as a hero and as a character um because of his sort of personal um i guess struggles and maybe isn't even the right word but um his oh gosh his character arc i guess would just be the easiest way to say that and uh i don't know how, i think well we give this away on the back of the book so we can talk about it so um he is seen like you said as a traitor to the portuguese and so um what's his name matthias remember his last name Dale Dale out for him uh so yeah, we can talk about that and then what happens maybe to his uh, as a result of this feud i guess you call it say again uh, oh i'm just talking about what happens to his family and you know that oh. kind of drives the this i would say the second part of the novel you know right right i, was, well, I didn't want to give away spoilers but we it's on the back of the book so i guess we can't sure. put a spoiler well when he, when when calabar switches his alliance um allegiance from the portuguese to uh the dutch his family is in danger i mean that's just the facts and he is in danger he's in danger every time he steps out the front door of his house uh so he's had to move his family he's got a wife and he's got three children uh, uh is his wife martin lua and carlos are his children and they live in Recife under Dutch protection. Um, so he, he, he lives, he really lives on the edge, really in a very precarious and dangerous place. Whereas I say, every time he walks out the door, he could potentially uh, be uh, captured and executed, which is what happens to him in real life. Um, and, and he actually had a pretty reasonably decent I don't know if how, how, how personal it was with Matthias, but he had served Matthias and Matthias knew him. So he took it personally, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the switch, you know, the, the, the change of allegiance. So, uh, but the, the, the fact that he's called a traitor really hurts him personally, hurts Calabar personally, because in his mind, he doesn't think himself a traitor. He's serving his people, you know, he's serving his people, he's serving his family. So the notion that he is a traitor really weighs heavily on his mind. And it affects, in many ways, the decisions that he makes going throughout the novel, especially later on in the novel, like you say, when he's got to make a real, a real hard decision about continuing to sort of serve the Dutch or go in the other direction and protect his family. Um, and so then there's also this, um, I also want to talk about the character 
oh what's his last name moses the captain moses eames uh can you oh. tell us a little bit about him and how moses cohen henriquez eames or anies I, I i don't know how to exactly pronounce that last <laughs> thing myself yeah moses is great um sephardic pirate jewish pirate he um he served the dutch as a, as a pirate absolutely he's a historical yeah. figure in fact his his real claim to fame historically was the battle of matanzas the bay of matanzas where he he helped the dutch capture the uh spanish uh silver fleet i think in, near cuba or in the bay of cuba there in matanzas and that was ha that happened prior to the ring of fire that happened in 1628 I believe. Mm -hmm. so he's he's very well known he's very famous <clears throat> He is very well connected with the Jewish population and the Jewish communities in um, Brazil and in Recife and Pernambuco. Um, in fact, Antonio Vaz, he later on, he actually takes that island as sort of his own, and he sort of, he sort of, of course, it doesn't happen that way in 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 the novel. <clears throat> we would have been, um, we would have had to have been the narrative equivalent of tone deaf, not to see that there was a throne essentially being a, a, a theme delivered. To us, which is the world of marginalized peoples and characters. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're dealing with, with Calabar, who is of two societies, and the society that was the more powerful, the colonizer, if you will, uh, it had, went, once he certainly never saw him as an equal when he worked for them, and then when he no longer does, this is the great betrayal, because of course they did him such a great favor, by by employing him to begin with and treating him almost like he was one of them um and <laughs> right and, and and certainly you have the same thing with with um uh uh Moses in, in that he's uh, he's he's uh, again uh, why why is it that there are so many people of of Jewish and Sephardic background in the new world because there's so few they go where they can to make a living because so many places are dangerous or or prohibited to them. Mm. So you so you have that. Then you have his wife Celia, and then of course as the novel goes on, the increasing depiction of the slave peoples and the slave trade, um, which is this book is the first in that in the entire series that really jumps on that, and that was a major major concern to us because we uh, I think it's safe to say we were conscious of the fact that um, in a perfect world, this would, this would writ be written, this book would have been written by people who, who, whose background stems from that origin. Um, as it was, we were the, there was nobody around who was w doing it. And it seemed to me that it was, and I think both of us, it's, well, we can do it or it can go unspoken. And it seemed to me that unspoken was worse than being spoken mm -hmm. by people of our origins rather than the origins of, of the people right. who lived through all these atrocities and horrors. Um, and so the, the book just, it, it, the story, I should say, the story just kept on coming back to this issue of, um, of, of what it is to be oppressed, what it is to be marginalized, how you, how you fight, who you can make friends with, how much you can trust those friends. I find that the most interesting, the, the, the Spanish and the Dutch are pretty easy to, to I, I, I don't wanna be overly harsh, but the bottom line is as imperialist powers, they were amongst the most harsh. And for anybody who thinks that they, they, they do harsh business in this book, you need to look up the history of how the Spanish eliminated the native people called the Taino of uh, Hispaniola. It's spelled T-A-I-N-O. It, 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 it stands head and shoulders with uh, the Holocaust.
uh, not in terms of almost in terms of numbers, but it's amazing that it could even be done, given the number of Spanish involved <clears throat> and the and the relatively primitive conditions under which they were having to embark upon their final solution mm. on that particular uh, body of land. So this was just right there for us to work with, and uh, it really informed a lot of our choices. And it also led to some of the gestation because we really wanted to get it right. We wanted to get the tone right. A lot of 1632 books, uh, as people will know, have a have a have a sort of lighthearted comedic element to them. Uh, and if it's not the main arc, there's some of it. You know, sorry for the folks who look forward to it, but you can't really talk about Middle Passage, African slavery, and have that in the book and not, in my opinion, have it be a slap in somebody's face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you won't find that. Not going to find that in this book. Yeah, 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 Chuck's absolutely right. I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely a struggle along the way for us to try to strike the right tone, how we go forward dealing with this issue, especially when you get to, you know, later on in the novel, where you know we're we're dealing with conditions on a slave ship, and in the plantation up in the up in the Caribbean. So, uh, yeah, it was tough, but but I think I think we did a good job, all things considered. I, I was very pleased with the final uh, final. Uh, you know, choices that we made. Yeah, I, th I was going to ask I'm, about that. And I thought... I... Go ahead, Chuck. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that I'm not going to... I am I am mindful that I am probably not the person who can say whether we did a great job or not. <laughs> Both we're authors and once again, we don't... It's not our origins. But I can only say this much, and I know I can say this for, for not only Robert, and for me, but Eric looked at this book three times and I kept waving it under his nose and I'm saying, we have to get this right. Um, we were, I think, as conscientious, sensitive to the story and to our limitations as, as the writers of the story um, as we could possibly be. Uh, whether that translates into a great job, well, you folks out there are gonna tell us that. Yeah. And I was going to say, I'm probably not the, the right one to give you a thumbs up either, but uh, I did think it was, I, I think I could, I could tell that this was something you guys had taken very seriously and were trying to portray um, accurately. And, and, uh, and another aspect I wanted to talk about, and this kind of goes back to that sort of thing I was talking about where we have a, the broad a scope of things and also the very human side, which is that I was trying to search for the right words that I was just thinking through this question. You don't present slavery as complicated because it's not complicated, it's awful. It's just, it's morally abhorrent. And that comes across in the books, but you do portray it as complex because I think the easy thing with this whole series would have been Americans come to the past and we, and we fix it, you know, uh, and overnight it, everything changes. And that's not how this series works. We've talked about the ripple effects and it's slow and, uh, I think you touched on that, where it would be easy to be like, well, the Americans come and we know slavery is bad, so we just end it. We end slavery, but you can't just end slavery as a small town. You know, it took it took quite a bit worldwide in our own timeline to end it. And uh, I think you guys did a good job of portraying the difficulties people would run up against uh, in in this timeline of, uh, to end this this terrible practice well you gotta yeah, yeah you, slavery up up to the ring of fire slavery has already been in portugal for over 100 years and it also had been into the caribbean for that long too 
I mean, I read an account where Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand had sanctioned the importation of African slaves into Hispaniola in the early 1500s. Now, it probably didn't just ignite overnight, but, you know, it's an institution that has been in place for a very long time. And a lot of people came through the ring of fire, but not enough. And there's certainly not enough in the theater in order to put to put an end to this institution overnight. It's just it's just not going to happen. And um, so it's going to take time. It is complex to break down, but it is an issue that has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. We, we cannot in the series be in the new world in the capacity that we are in the series and not deal with this issue in some capacity or another. Another thing that's that's very important and is is unique to this timeline is that, of course, uh, Admiral Trump never comes to the New World. This is that's not his bailiwick. He is he is an old world sailor in in history and captain. What is interesting about his background is that he was actually taken captive by the 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 North African pirates twice. Uh, before he was the age of 16 uh, or 17, I think, and was considered a slave. Um, and so this makes him on one level very sensitive to slavery in the new world. But also, and it, it, you were talking about the complexities of slavery, just in terms of what we, we only have this one term, right? Slavery. But slavery, when you're a hostage, having been taken prisoner by a, by a, 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 a bay, who is in in uh, in Tunis, for instance? Who is uh, who's really just trying to get you get ransom for you, and you're and you're almost pampered there. He says, "Yeah, okay, it wasn't. I didn't have, I didn't have free choice. I, that that was completely taken away from me." He said, "But you can't talk. I can't even begin. I can't talk about what I'm seeing in front of me because that's not what I experienced." And and that's one of the things that also I I think is I hope this. This novel will be a springboard for a consideration of we have this one word, slavery. Well, what that meant in Greece, what that meant in Rome, what that meant in Africa, and what that meant in the New World, and under the different and under the different uh, colonial powers, these are these are all important threads in that same grim tapestry that want to be teased out and looked at. And we just we just managed to get to a distinguishing between a couple of the most the ones that have the highest contrast in this one, but um, but yeah, it was it was exciting, it was exhilarating and terrifying <laughs> to do that in a way. Because I mean, I can't imagine a more hot button topic. Right. When you get right down to it. Um. So uh, now that we've made it sound like a grim exploration of slavery, uh, let's talk about. There is a lot of fun in the book, though. Uh, it's very much swashbuckling kind of. Um, sections in there and battles and hand-to-hand combat and uh i guess i just wanted to talk about that a little bit and also just maybe how you guys um have approached those writing those you know that's something to me as a writer i'm always i always my joke is like oh no things have to happen how am i going to do this you know like i want to have someone think maybe two people talk that's that the limits of the you know um so what was it like because i think you did a great job of putting the reader at least this reader into the midst of all that um that action there? Well, I, 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 Chuck and I uh, worked quite a while on the outline 
And one of the things that we discussed early in the, in the process was that we wanted to have as much action as possible in this novel. Because this novel, as we've already discussed, it's, it's different in many ways than other novels in the series. But there's not a lot of high level, there are some, Trump and, and Matthias de Albuquerque, there are a few high level guys that kind of like sit in a room and make decisions. But we're dealing with lieutenants here, we're dealing with captains, we're dealing with men in the field. You know, Calabar is a man of action, Moses is a man of action. The, the characters that we focus on are men of action. They, they, they take the orders and they go out and uh, uh, put them into practice. And so uh, when, when, when the outline, when we, when we were working on the outline, I made it a point to make sure that we had a sufficient amount of action going through the novel. And I wanted to make sure that we um, had a, a good amount of it that affected uh, events for the main characters, for Moses and for, um, for Calabar because uh, otherwise, like you say, we'd have just people sitting around in rooms talking and that just was not going to happen uh, in, this, in this situation. It just did not feel right for the kind of story that we wanted to tell. Uh, so I want to talk also about uh, like Celia or Celia, I don't know, again, my pronunciation. I've heard it, uh, my, my, my wife speaks Portuguese and- okay. um, she pronounces it Salia. Salia. So that's okay. how I've so, been. That's how I've been pronouncing it. So talking about, I guess, a little bit hot button issues in that you're two guys writing a woman character and a, a woman character from <clears throat> 1633. You know, this is this is this is a few years before the first wave of feminism, I guess, right? Uh, by just barely, maybe a couple months. You know, so but I found her to be a strong character, and I just wonder about. Um, how writing her felt and what it was like and, and her character. And then also how to convey, I think what she was, is a very strong female character, but without making her feel anachronistic, uh, you know, and making her a, a third wave feminist or something in, in 1637 or 1636, you know, and um, how you guys were able to, I think, again, maybe I'm not the person to say, but I thought you handled it well. <laughs> well, thank you. Appreciate By that. By the way, that, this isn't a question for, this is not a question for us guys. This is a question for, for Robert. As a matter of fact, really almost every question you're asking is for Robert because so, I am, I, I mean, I wrote a few things, but this is his book. This is his baby, and uh, and and uh, a beautiful baby it is, uh, in a in a very in a very dark crib, so to speak, um, and by which I mean by which I mean filled with terror and and malign malign forces surrounding it. Um, so when I just want I haven't had the chance to make this very clear. Um, if there are, if there are flaws in the book, that's probably my hand. If there's great stuff in the book, you're you're talking you're talking to Robert. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Chuck. You're very I'm a kind. Salia. I'm a Salia. Yeah, um, Salia. Yeah, I love Salia. Um, and I was I was wondering, and maybe if you were to ask what were my what were my favorite two characters or what were my favorite characters in the book, Salia would absolutely be one of them. Um, I just wrote her the way I felt like she would respond to the situation at the time. You know, um, she is. She's married to a man who, as I said earlier, every time he steps out the door, she may come back as a corpse. Mm -hmm. She's got that to worry about. She's got to worry about her children. And as we know, I don't want to give away too much, but there's a problem with one of their children. Yeah. Um, she's got to she's got to deal with the stress of knowing that her husband can be dead at any time. She's got to worry about the stress of dealing with her children. And she's, she's not trusting. She's not very trusting. She doesn't necessarily trust the Dutch any more than she trusts the Portuguese or the Spanish or whatever. So 
all of that tension and all of that thing builds up sometimes. And she snaps back at Calabar from time to time and she, she stands her ground. Uh, but I felt like she had to, you know, she, she's in a situation where she has to. Now, maybe it's a little too modern, but I just felt like under the circumstances, there was no way that I was going to write this woman as a little meek waif. You know, I just, it just was not going to happen because it just did not feel, and it wasn't, it wasn't appropriate. And then of course, later on in the novel, when her and her children get into really bad situations, she's got to make some key decisions. And sometimes they're, they're tough and, and brutal decisions, but she's got to make them in order to just survive. I mean, what she's doing is she's just biding time. You know, she's, she's trying to, to live day to day to day until one, one day, maybe she can get out of the situation that she's in. So she's tough. And I, and I think she comes along a really strong and a really effective uh, character for a thing. And, and a good person to play off of Calabar too, because he's kind of quiet and he, you know, he, he's strong internally, but he's kind of quiet and he, and he needs somebody once in a while to like, you know, uh, to call him on his BS, you know, that occasionally. So that's how it is. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's actually why it, for me, uh, as I saw this, I, I had exactly the same sort of questions and concerns. And uh, what, I, what I came to see is that really, if Calabar is the sort of individual we see, who is not a, you know, if he was a leader and we were going to assume he's the sort of leader who does that by denigrating others and by lording it over them and being arrogant and all the rest, it would have been difficult to see him given that he's in the 1630s, winding up marrying uh, a woman like Celia. But given that he's not that sort of individual, it, it almost becomes the point where you can't see him married to anybody but somebody like Celia, somebody who's got easily that kind of, of sort of, if you will, innate autonomy that just sort of radiates out of her and, and is able to navigate the, the, the roles of mother, of wife, uh, human in a community, um, and and her her responsibility not just to all those things but to herself is very consistent to my mind with the sort of what Calabar would define as strength, and that that he would in fact look for strength rather than somebody doting. So um, so in some ways I say I think you could say that it reads as modern, but I also think that given the way Robert crafted the Calabar character and the dynamic between the two of them, it, it makes for me, I can buy that relationship in, six, in, in, in the time period we're looking at without any problem. And I guess this, maybe we can talk a, a little bit broader about, you know, both of you gentlemen, uh, we can see behind Chuck, all the ones with his name on them have written in this ring of fire universe quite a bit. Um, what is that like? Because you're balancing real life events uh, and real characters as we've discussed, and then these fictional characters, but now it's become this, I use this term web of, it's not just your fictional character, you know, and then you're creating people that have to slot in. And what is that like balancing all of that? And then also making it feel authentic to the period, but it's not really the period because they have this modern influence as well. And uh, I think, and I guess maybe we can segue into the, is that part of why you guys think this is this series we're now on? Well, this is number 30, but we've got more. I mean, I've already entered in, you know, the next few. Um, we're 30 plus 
novels as well as all the Grantville stuff. Is that part of the appeal is um, how all these things interact, do you think? Well, it, it, it certainly is to me. I mean, um, when I started working in the series in, uh, I think, 2010, 2011, um, I've always been interested in history. So the history part of it, uh, as far as diving into the history, and that was not an issue. Uh, and I've always been interested in maybe diving into the, the the military aspects of it in some ways. You know, I've always enjoyed that. I'm a big war gamer. I, I, I work in the gaming industry. So it's just a, it's just an area that I really enjoy. Um, but I probably, if, if I had, if, if, if it was just historical and if it, and it didn't have some element of uptime, uptime characters or maybe, uh, you know, situations that have come across the Atlantic into the Caribbean into thing where there's, there's very few uptimers in this novel in, in Calabar's War. It's mm -hmm. almost primarily done from the point of view of downtimers, but the sensibility is still be, beginning to be felt, you know what I'm saying? The, the, the notion of, of ending slavery and the, um, the, the, the need to, uh, you know, find, improve, uh, you know, Jewish life in, in the new world and stuff like that. If it didn't have that, <laughs> if, if I couldn't draw upon some of that modern time, modern feel, um, I probably wouldn't write it as well as I do because I feel comfortable being able to deal with issues because I can play them off of each other. You know, I can say this is a modern uh, uh, sense of, you know, uh, how to deal with slavery. These people are against it and it makes sense to them. It's part of their lifestyle. It's part of their whole livelihood. And then you can play off of them and you can create uh, tension between those two dynamics that I think this series and maybe other uh, alternate history series does, but this series in particular, because of so many uptimers around, really gives the author the opportunity to explore uh, those kinds of things, uptime sensibilities versus downtime sensibilities, and you can have a lot of fun with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, from my standpoint, I'm sitting here and, and thinking what is probably something vaguely like a, a, a macro genre heretical thought um, by which I mean, uh, now that now that I've introduced this puzzling neologism, yeah, right, right. Um, you know, when I read straight historical novels, I'm I'm always struck by the fact that you know, first of all, there's the real, and then there's verisimilitude. An an author right. an author is courting disaster, if not if not professional suicide, by sticking with the real, because the real is frankly not usually very exciting. There's very little in the way of, of denouement or closure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, narrative is something, I don't wanna to go too far with this idea, but I think it's rightly said that narrative is in many ways something, it's, it's, it's a reconstruction of what happened in the way we think of it, not so much the way we experienced it. Okay. Um, the, events, the events are much more orderly as dominoes in retrospect than in the moment that they're falling. Um, and the thing, about, the thing about straight history books is it has this problem that it's the, 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 the need to make it understandable to somebody of modern sensibilities means to my mind that it is very hard to go back probably beyond, and I'm being generous, I think, 1780, 1770, without saying, well, that's just not how they thought. Mm -hmm. they, they, they didn't have those idioms. They, this is, there are assumptions, there are even first notions that are, have not been had yet. You know, the, the age of, the age of reason is, is in mid stride. The age of enlightenment is, 
sort of finally taking hold in terms of its in in terms of, of what its longer arc uh, consequences are going to be. And uh, and I, it's it's always sort of I can't I I don't dare stand away too far from a straight historical novel as a novelist without saying ah, I don't know if I buy this. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing is that here the novel that represents a reality that so far as we know, could not possibly take place, actually feels more genuine. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, is it's getting to what, what Robert was said. There, there are these modern sensibilities, characters who are born from them, but then this, this other wave of characters who are being influenced by them, who've read this or thought about that. And at that point, it's almost like first, a first contact novel sort of being yeah. played yeah. out over a long period of time where, where the, you know, the contact between the two species, the, each one is rubbing off a little bit on the other. And they're, they're sort of, they're, they're, they're engaged in this trading pastiche of, of, you know, well, I took this from you, but I did it in my own way. That, that whole sort of thing. And, and that's, I think, for me, one of, the, one of the things that keeps this fresh, but also it feels as though if this happened, our verisimilitude is closer to the real than our verisimilitude is when we're writing something straight history from the same period. Because how do you, how do you convert the modern mindset and all its assumptions into, into a novel set in our historical 1630 and have it be believable? or or understandable it's you're gonna make you're gonna run into one of those problems it's either true to the period and it's like what you know with like footnotes longer than it'd be you know longer than the the actual text itself uh or or it it's not going to it's not going to pass the the historical sniff test as it were so that's it's you know in answer to your your almost forgotten question at least for me is it's um it's not it's not so much of a challenge as it's a liberation it's a way to it's a way to play with human thought and the way things might have been that that is uh, is is it, it, there's probably a lot of hard work to it. But I think the excitement tends to to make it uh, to, you don't remember that part of it. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, and I think you put that really eloquently, you know, and um, when I sort of my feelings when I read this stuff and how I feel about it and what what I, what does draw me into it because, you know, Robert said he's a big history buff but sort of like you know initially years ago when I first heard this I'm like oh, 1600s Europe it's cool I guess but then you get into it and it it really does uh, I think a lot of that that oh whatever you get the point I'm not, my words are <laughs> you know whatever are failing me but uh, it just is it's just just such a unique take and I and again I think the, the brilliance of Eric opening it up to other people uh so that it could have because you know obviously one person could not I don't think handle write all of this certainly and as you said earlier Chuck different people come in and bring different ideas that influence things and and the ripple going out as far as it does and and like you said in this novel there's very few people from uh, the uptime, but uh, yet we feel their presence throughout it. Um, was well, is there anything else that we missed, or is there any any plans, further plans for Calabar? Have we seen the last of him, or uh, what is what's next for you, gentlemen? Uh, well, I certainly hope that there's more plans for him. I certainly have ideas for that. Um, I, you know, it's going to have to work itself into the timeline. 
Um, at some point, though, and hopefully sooner rather than later, I'm going to begin to do it. I, I have definitely, I mean, at the end of the novel, well, I, I'm not going to spoil the end of the novel. I'm not going to say anything. That would not be, that would not be appropriate and wise. But um, there, there is definitely room for expansion and um, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I'll be able to do it. I certainly have ideas for him. I mean, Calabar, when, you know, when Chuck found him in his research with the Commander Cantrell and introduced him initially in Commander Cantrell for a very short period of time, uh, you know, he's he's an important part of the New World series now, New World portion of the uh, of the series. And so uh, he's got something to do, something to say, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do so. And what are you, but what are you, what are you coming out with next, Robert? Yeah. Oh, what am I coming out with next? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, I do have, well, I, I, I had an album come out last uh, December, uh, which I would like to mention. It's not a Bane novel, unfortunately, but it's okay. It's, 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 it's good. It was, uh, it's called um, The Last Hurrah. It was published by Wing and Hussar Publishing, which is a small press that has a, uh, that does novels, media tie-in novels for Mantic games. Mantic is a miniatures game, wargaming uh, uh company uh and the novel that i wrote the last hurrah is based upon their board game dreadball so it's a it's a sports it's a sports uh, uh novel and it's about that event and so that came out in december so anybody who's interested in taking a look at that can go up on uh, amazon and just search the last hurrah robert e waters and you'll find it um and um I don't have anything coming out right away, but I do have something um, that will be published. It's going to be uh, republished in the next Granville Gazette, Granville Gazette uh, nine, nine, I think is the one. I think that's I have right. a short. Yeah, I have one of the short stories that I published in, in, in the Granville Gazette is going to be uh, in there. I think that one's called the uh, Letters from Inchon. It's about a, um, uh, a veteran from the Korean War who came back. He's one of the members of the of, of Grantville. And it's about his story. Um, and then Eric, uh, Eric Brown and I have a, a story that is going to appear in 1637, The Coast of Chaos. We, we, uh, we wrote uh, a story about dealing with the, uh, the uh, relationship and the um, political situation of the Algonquin up in Rhode Island and Connecticut. So uh, that story is going to be part of that thing. And then a longer term, a little further down the road, Chuck, um, uh, Eric Flint and I are actually working on one of the mainline novels. Uh, Chuck's going to have the other one. So it's splinting, it's splintering now. It's going in two different directions. Eric and I are going in one direction. Chuck will go in another direction. And uh, we're working on that. And that's coming along really well. All right. Chuck, I know you've got uh, your new fantasy series coming up I, I'm always I should say to the people I may have said this on the podcast before I do a lot of the um it's not important for me but I'm always like a few <clears throat> seasons ahead I can't ever remember what's come out and what has <laughs> so, I'm always like that came out last year like it come out next year David <laughs> you know, so. anyway so what have you so got coming up the uh the 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 sort of the run-up to this was just last month um the second book in my dyad in john ringo's black tide rising mm -hmm. came out uh the the novel last year was um at the end of the world and this one was at the end of the journey mm -hmm. um and uh, that's apparently pleasing people so i'm 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 happy i i'm certainly not no one, no one can be John Ringo except for John Ringo. But apparently, I have I have found an acceptable voice for his audience. Yeah, um, it's good. I, I, I one thumbs up. I think it's a great series. <laughs> um, and so, of course, this 
Um, there is, uh, there's a constant roll out from Murphy's Lawless, which is Beyond Terra Press, which is an imprint of Chris Kennedy uh, publications. That is uh, the, that is a, not a side arc so much as a um, occasionally um, crossing arc with the Kane, Kane Riordan universe novels. Yes, yes. Uh, it is, it was sort of designed and conceived of as um, a, a, a little bit less big idea and intrigue and more sort of dead ahead um, uh, ripping yarns. And uh, the second season, which is to say the sex, second year has just kicked off this past month um, and, uh, and is being very well received. We'll do two, last year we did one goat choker of a novel um, uh, and uh, this year we're doing it instead as two smaller ones, each which are sort of three novellas braided together and then I come in add things and there were other parts which were not included within those original novellas that turn it into a uh, into a satisfyingly large novel um then and then as you say at the end of the year David um I uh I have uh, the first novel in the Vortex of World series coming out which is called uh, This Broken World and uh I I won't say much about that except that it is it will be immediately recognizable, the classical influences of, of the epic fantasy tradition to everybody who's familiar with that tradition, and then be prepared to have all of that stood on its head. All right. Well, well that sounds, that should uh, whet people's appetite, certainly. That sounds, we're, we're looking forward to that, I know, around the office. So, um, gentlemen. Uh, well, it's got a dragon, right? So. Hey, there you go. <laughs> It'd be bad. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to hold the book up one more time. 16, uh, too sunny. 1636 Calabar's War. Uh, it is out now in trade paperback and ebook. You can go to bain.com and uh, wherever you get your books and ebooks from, uh, he'll have it available. Uh, Chuck and Robert, thank you so much uh, for coming on the Bain Free Radio Hour today. It's been a great uh, conversation with you all. Thank you. Great Thank seeing you, you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And now another installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution, but now the mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. BSDS Hawthorne, Beowulf Planetary Orbit, Beowulf System. Sorry, Skipper. I know you don't want any comms that aren't essential, but I think you'd better take this one. Captain John Neitz looked up from his cup of coffee and tried not to scowl at his executive officer. Commander Battalodi and he had been friends for years, and the XO's eyes were as exhausted as his own. They were also apologetic. Why is that, David? 
It came out testier than he'd intended it to, and he shook his head in a quick apology of his own. Sorry. No sweat, Skip, Batalodi said. But like I say, I think you'll want to take this one. It's Christina. Neat set his cup in the holder on his command chair's arm and inhaled. For once, I think you're right about something, he said with a weary smile, and Batalodi's lips twitched in brief response. Then Neitz looked over his shoulder at the comm officer. Patch it through to my Unilink, please, Carla. Yes, sir. Neitz leaned back in his command chair. It was one of the most comfortable chairs in the known galaxy, but somehow it wasn't quite capable of feeling that way for a body as tired as his was. John, a beloved voice said in his ear, and he closed his eyes while he savored it. Hi, honey, he responded. I hate to disturb you, Christina Neat said. I know you're all exhausted and going crazy up there. There are disturbances, and then there are disturbances, sweetheart. He shook his head, even though she couldn't see it. Trust me, this is one I don't mind. In fact, it's one I think I need. It must be like visiting hell, she said softly. You got that one right, babe, he replied. My God, you got that one right. She was silent for a moment, and Neitz could almost physically feel her reaching across the thousands of kilometers of vacuum between BSDS Hawthorne and Columbia. Christina was a senior attorney in the Directorate of Justice, and things must be almost as crazy in her office as they were up here, he thought. Her boss, Devora Ophir Giacconi, the board of director solicitor, and her senior deputy had both been aboard Beowulf Alpha. He wasn't sure who Ophir Giacconi's surviving senior deputy was now, but a hellacious workload had to be coming down on Christina, too. There was a lot of that going around. Six days. That was how long had passed since the Beowulf strike. Six days of nightmare labor, and a huge part of that had landed on Hawthorne. She was one of the Beowulf System Defense Force's Whitethorn-class rescue ships, superbly designed and equipped for search and rescue operations under the most difficult conditions imaginable. But there were only eight of them in the entire SDF, and no one had ever imagined conditions like this. No wonder Battle and all of Nietzsche's people were so exhausted. No really big chunks of wreckage had gotten through to the planet, thank God. There'd been no major surface strikes, no tsunamis like the one which had killed his third cousin and her family in Iwata. The block ships, which had been unable to protect the habitats, had at least managed to intercept their broken bones before that happened. Not that plenty of bits and pieces still in orbit didn't pose potential threats. One of the first things Search and Rescue Command had done was to plot vectors for all the larger chunks of debris. Those which had threatened other habitats had been intercepted first, but scores of others tumbled on new highly eccentric orbits that swooped low enough to graze the fringe of atmosphere. Those would have to be dealt with soon as well, before they lost sufficient velocity to nosedive to the surface like the lost hammer of Thor. Most of the debris threatened no one, though, not immediately. And God alone knew how many pieces of that debris had once been human beings. Nietzsche's jaw tightened at that thought. The debris pattern, coupled with the sensor records of the actual event, made it clear the charges had been placed with vicious forethought. Law enforcement and military intelligence were only starting their relentless assault on how it had been done, but at least a dozen competing theories had already emerged. 
Personally, Neitz went with what was generally regarded as the most probable. The devices had to have been in one of the central cargo hubs aboard each habitat. It was the only way to account for the wreckage patterns, and those hubs had been located at the cores of the enormous platform's personnel sections. That was why the bastards had taken that approach, chosen those locations for some innocuous, well-camouflaged crate or container. A cargo canister in one of the open space orbital holding areas would have inflicted little, probably even no damage when it detonated. Even one of the long-term controlled condition storage booms would have provided sufficient separation for much of something as massive as Beowulf Alpha was, had been, to survive. But not in the cargo hubs. They'd been deliberately located as conveniently as possible to the places where people lived. How much longer, honey? Christina asked in his ear, and his nostrils flared. However long it takes. It came out much more harshly than he'd intended. Lord, I'm sorry, he said a moment later, his tone contrite. It's just, just that we can't quit. We just can't. I know. And I shouldn't push for answers you can't give me anyway. I know that, too. He could picture that small, loving, half-apologetic smile perfectly. It's just that we miss you down here. Miss you, too, he said. But he knew what she was really thinking. It had been almost a tea week, an entire tea week. Hawthorne alone had recovered over 600 bodies so far, and that wasn't even her primary mission. He had no idea how many had been recovered by search and rescue small craft, and he didn't want to know, not really. But that wasn't Hawthorne's job. Her teams were out amid the densest parts of the debris field in her specialized salvage shuttles, threading their way through the thousand-ton chunks of alloy, cutting their way into compartments that might still be intact, searching desperately for someone who might still be alive. So far, they'd found 16. 16 and they weren't going to find any more of them. He'd made himself accept that 24 hours ago. Anyone who'd been trapped in one of those compartments had run out of air or heat or power long since. But that didn't mean they'd stop looking. No one left behind. That was Search and Rescue's motto, and they would, by God, keep the faith. No matter what, no matter who, they'd honor that trust. I'm sorry to say that the real reason I calmed you is that I just heard from Lizzie, Christina said after a moment, and Neitz frowned. Lizzie, Elizabeth, was their daughter, a student at Hippocrates University. She'd been safely on the other side of the planet when Alpha blew up, so why? Lizzie, he repeated. Yes. Christina paused, almost as if she was gathering her strength. She just found out Felicia Cummings, Tim Kwan, Katsuko Johnson, and half a dozen of her other friends were at the Broken Arrow concert. Neitz closed his eyes in sudden pain. Broken Arrow. He remembered how hard he'd tried to get Lizzie a ticket to the band's live concert. She shouldn't have been going, not with midterms coming up this week. But he'd known how badly she'd wanted to. And he'd been bitterly disappointed when he found out he'd waited too long. Then, before all 40,000 concert goers died with the rest of Beowulf Alpha, and Katsuko, Katsuko, who'd been Lizzie's best friend since nursery school. Oh, sweet Jesus, he whispered. I know, I know. 
He heard the tears glittering in his wife's voice. You know what she's like. She's visiting Katsuko's mom right now, and then she's headed over to the Kwans. She's like you. She has to be there for people. Neitz nodded silently. He knew exactly what his daughter was doing at that moment, despite her own terrible grief. I just wanted you to know, Christina went on. You know she's not going to mention it to you, certainly not while you're still up there, but I figured. You figured I should know before she and I have a chance to talk about it, he finished for her. Because the last thing either of us need is for me to say something that hurts her all over again. And because you're a good mom and a better wife, we're both lucky to have you. Oh, I've always known that, she said with a slightly watery chuckle, and he smiled wearily. Well, at least I've finally started figuring it out too, he said. Wouldn't want to say I could be a little sl- Priority signal, Lieutenant Simpkins Howard announced suddenly from communications, and Nita's eyes popped open. Gotta run, honey. Go, Christina said, and promise me you'll try to get at least a little rest? Love you, he said, instead of issuing any promises he knew he couldn't keep. Then he killed the Unilink and swiveled his chair to face communications. What is it, Carla? It's the bosun, sir. Charlie Three's reporting a live suit beacon. A live beacon? Yes, sir. Battle leaned forward, looking over the sensor officer of the watch's shoulder. Now he straightened and turned to face Neitz. That's sure as hell what it looks like, Skipper, he said. One of platform engineering suits from the transponder code. After this long? Where's it been for the last week? It's gotta be some kind of sensor glitch. Don't know where it's been, sir, but it's Boson Lockin. Battalodi twitched a tired smile. If you want, I can ask him to double check. Bad idea, Neat said, shaking his head. Senior Master Chief Petty Officer Bill Lockin, Hawthorne's senior NCO, had been in search and rescue since the year Captain John Neats graduated from high school. He was the best wreck diver Neats had ever met, which was the reason he and Charlie Three, Neats' most experienced shuttle crew, were the point of Hawthorne's spear. If he said he was picking up a signal, he was picking up a signal, which didn't explain why no one had picked it up sooner. The bosun does say it's coming from inside a real rat's nest of wreckage, Skipper, Battalodi continued as if he'd heard his captain's thought. In fact, if I had to guess, the problem's how deep it is, how much junk it has to punch through. That's got to be why he didn't spot it earlier. What's the status of the survivor? We don't know there is a survivor yet. Battalodi's excitement waned visibly. All the bosun's got so far is the beacon. He says there's no telemetry, or if there is, it's not getting through anyway. He's working on it. Understood. Neitz inhaled. No wonder Battalodi's initial exhilaration had faded. Skin suit beacons were designed to be incredibly powerful, but suit telemetry channels were shorter ranged and considerably weaker. If the wreckage around it had been sufficient to block it for so long, it was entirely possible there was telemetry and it just couldn't get through. But it was far, far more likely that no telemetry was getting through because there was no one, no one alive at least, inside the suit in question. 
Stay on it, David, he said after a moment. And tell Boson Lockin to keep us informed. I know he will anyway, but God, I could use some good news for a change. Yes, sir, Battalodi said. We all could. That was another installment in David Weber's Honor Harrington masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters for sitting down with me today to talk about their new novel, 1636, Calabar's War. And thanks as always to our regular host, Mr. Tony Daniel, for letting me sit in this week. Now, Tony is actually on a much deserved vacation right now. You know, I think he really needed the rest and relaxation to get away from all the stress. I mean, the guy's a father, a husband, full-time editor, a writer, and of course he does the podcast almost every week. He really needed to relax. I know he was a little bit worried because the red-eye flight he was taking was supposed to be flying through a thunderstorm, but they assured him he could just lean back, look out the window, enjoy the show, and everything would be fine. But I'm a little worried. You know, I woke up this morning and I found a text that he'd apparently sent last night sometime mid-flight. It was in all capital letters, and it just said, something is out there on the wing. Doesn't sound very relaxing to me. I hope he got it all figured out. I'm sure he'll let us know about it when he's back next week. Until then, I'm David Afshirerod, coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, 